Hey everyone, just before we get into this episode, I just want to remind you all to sign up to the mailing list for the Podcases app that's coming soon. We take you through interesting patient cases from start to finish and you get to reinforce your knowledge with an interactive quiz and see how you're doing on a live scoreboard. Sign up now on scrubbedin.co.uk to get notified when we go live. Now let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Scrubbedin podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. We're joined by another amazing guest. This week we have Miss Jess McNickin, who is a consultant ONG working at Guys and St. Thomas's. The cool thing about Jess is she did the vast majority of her training in Sydney, Australia and moved over to the UK. She's also, all the keen viewers may recognise her voice, she also did that amazing podcast for us on the obstetric case. Um, she's keen on gestational diabetes, menstrual disorders, she's a massive MedEd um, pioneer. She founded the COVID MedEd when it all kicked off and was supporting students during that time and she's involved in so many various activities um, and she is a tutor to both undergraduate trainees and works closely with King's College London and the medical students there. We're King's alumni so it's always a pleasure for us to kind of get in touch with the consultants from King's. It's a pleasure and an honour for us, Jess. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, Jess, you studied in Australia. You did the the vast majority of your training there. You came to the United Kingdom. You are a consultant in a very renowned and prestigious hospital in central London. But we want to take it all the way back. We want to take it to the very beginning and... Take us through that journey of when you decided you wanted to be a doctor, when you wanted to apply for medicine and kind of share that journey from the very beginning up until present day today. Okay, here we go. No. Um, yeah, so I, I, I understand I've gone across or against the grain that a lot of our um, United Kingdom fellow doctors have done. But yeah, so I did start my journey in Australia. And to be honest with you, I, I went to um, an all-girls school for my secondary education um, and was a little bit disappointed with my end result. And it's similar, you know, it's a bit of deja vu um, with what's happened recently um, within the United Kingdom. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. or fortunately now looking back, um, I didn't get into medicine firsthand and I didn't get into um, dietetic studies, which is what I also wanted to do. Uh, so mm-hmm. I packed my bags, I went on to study nutritional science and became a nutritionist. And it was during that time I felt that I wanted to um, continue my career in women's health um, and in particular, therefore, study medicine and do obstetrics and gynecology. So what I had to do was sit the exam to get into postgraduate medicine, did that, qualified as a doctor, which was terribly exciting as well. Um, And then I started what we call our internship or your equivalent of FY1 in Townsville, Queensland. Now, I'm not sure if anyone knows the map of Australia, but Townsville is very, very north. And I must mm. say, I think in our winters, the average temperature would be up there about 33 degrees. So it's hot. Oh, um, but wow. that, <laughs> there are no jackets in Townsville. Uh, so that's how I started my FY1 training. And I actually, on my first rotation, I did obstetrics and gynecology. I was very, very mm. lucky to have that opportunity. And um, up there, I was had the most wonderful mentors. So um, the head of our department was a really lovely gentleman who 
after every cesarean I closed, he would come and inspect the wound to make sure I did a good job. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't, mm -hmm. I therefore wouldn't be allowed to do the next one. So he, he took an exceptional <laughs> amount of time in mentoring me. And then there were lots of amazing consultants within that department that helped foster my love for OBS and Gynae. Yeah. Um, so from there, I did FY2, and then I was very fortunate enough to then get into specialty training, which then took me to Sydney, uh, which was a wonderful experience. And I must say, and I know we'll talk about this soon, but I think that's what mm. you want is you want this global perspective um, in wherever your pathway is going to take you. And the hospitals I trained at in Sydney did give that to me because I'd obviously come from far north Queensland. Um, I was based at the yeah. Western Sydney hospitals, and these, um, for those that know Sydney, are the lower socioeconomic part of our country, but with wonderful and healthy population that have the most amazing pathology. Um, and so that's where I did my specialty training. Um, and fortunately, mm -hmm. in Australia, within ONG, when we do our advanced training years, after all our examinations, we are able to do our final years abroad provided it's in a center that you can mm. continue to do your assessments um, and receive that educational supervision that you're meant to get. Um, and so I applied actually for a senior registrar job at Skype and St. Thomas's, um, thinking that what I wanted was an opportunity to build on my skills, my broad experience, um, and I guess build my sort of specialized areas of interest, um, which I knew London would offer that. And I was super, super fortunate mm -hmm. um, to get a 12-month role. And since then, I haven't looked back. I've stayed on. <laughs> so this was towards the end of the training when you came to the UK to finish it off? Or did you plan to study here for a year and then head back to Australia and then become a consultant there? Yes. Very good question. So my, my plan was I would just be here for 12 months. Um, but as life always takes you on unexpected terms um i met my now mm -hmm. husband in that 12 months uh -huh. and uh, <laughs> i have stayed on <laughs> fair enough okay that 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 is a more than valid reason <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite interesting um which is one of the topics i wanted to talk about is there are a lot of doctors in this country that kind of do the opposite to what you did so they go to australia they end up working there for a few years, some stay, some come back. Um, what would you say is the difference? What is that lure? What is so attractive to doctors from here that want to kind of go to the other end of the world um, and practice medicine there? Yes, I, I think that's a really good question. So, I mean, my, I guess my goal of coming abroad and experiencing it, um, and then say I did return, is mm. I knew that there was this, power of a global experience, especially within medicine. Um, I think you know, even though I was coming through uh, England being a developed country with a similar language to what I spoke, um, obviously, I knew that what I could get out of my 12 months and of course now my career, it, it's indescribable. Mm -hmm. um, I know now in my position, mm -hmm. I've had a global experience where I've worked in Australia in a Definitely. slightly different healthcare scenario. Um, and now I've come here and established myself. Um, and it, it is amazing of just how different parts of the medicine are, as well as how our health structure is um, is based. Mm. Um, I think I can see why I've gone against the grain, but I can see why others choose to go to Australia. And a big thing, I think, in the attraction of going to Australia as a junior doctor within the United Kingdom is that we do, to be honest with you, we get paid way better 
in Australia. Um, mm. Now, yeah. if I look back on my time, um, even as a junior doctor before I went on to train in Obzangani, um, I was earning enough to live a comfortable life, to travel, to pay off mm. my student debt. Every so, how it's structured there is we have say a forty-hour week. The mm. hours that you go over that forty-hour week, you're then paid on top of your baseline salary, and it's often at you know, a 50% addition. Um, so we mm, actually yeah. get paid for the work we do. Um, and I, I think, you know, when we obviously know going into medicine, we're not in it for the money. You know, we're not the individuals yeah. that were focused on wealth. That That's not our personal attributes. Mm. However, I think the financial gains as a junior doctor are important for maintaining your morale, maintaining your motivation, you know, helping you Definitely. want to continue to work as a clinician. It, it's a huge impact um, on your lifestyle choices and your career. And I, I think that's something that we just haven't quite got right here in the United Kingdom yet. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Agree. I, I think that morale point, uh, I completely agree with. I think because often we're, we're staying back, we're having to cancel a lot of plans. And I guess that little bit of con compensation means that maybe you can spend that extra money that was earned from staying back an extra few hours on something else. And it, it will make up hopefully partially. But I think, yeah, for morale, it's, it's, it's so important. Mm. Oh, definitely. I, and I think it's also, by earning that little bit more, you know, you're going to then want to go to, well, pre-COVID, you'd want to go to a conference or, you know, apply for that course yeah. that costs a little bit extra money beyond your study budget. Mm, I think yeah. it, it's really important that, and I, I'm not saying I have any power here, but we really mm -hmm. do need to um, help our junior doctors get a rise in their pay. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did you find the training in Obzangani compared to Australia and perhaps the training that you've seen perhaps some of your regs doing um is there a big difference how is the culture um i remember doing f um ong as an f2 rotation which i loved and it was a complete different experience for me but i used to hear how it was a very high pressured environment um there may be at times bullying there may be at times where regs were kind of hounded down have you ever experienced that is that something that you've noticed in Australia, noticed here? Um, yeah. And so what advice would you give to those individuals? Yeah. Sure. I, it's a really good question. So I think um, comparing, so first of all, so if we could compare Australian versus uh, British training for OBS and Gani, uh, to be very honest with you, mm. our curriculum is probably based on the one here. So we, uh, as a, as an Australian specialty, we really um, use the United Kingdom structure and structured that accordingly. Um, I was a trainee representative as a trainee in Australia, and so I, I got the ins and outs of you know the examinations and what was expected of a trainee. And actually, at the end of the day, I think we come out of training very similarly skilled. I think probably a, a challenge, and I think this is shared uniformly amongst both countries, mm. is that there is now challenges to get the gynecology type um, experience um, and I think mm -hmm. there's pros and cons of both um, countries amongst that. I think one of the big things about the NHS or doing training in the United Kingdom is that um, you get the majority of patients. In Australia we do have private health which is a little bit more paramount in the numbers 
So, mm. you know, where we get the exposure to obstetrics and gynecology is often in areas of where I was training in Sydney. You know, they're the lower socioeconomic areas where patients can't yeah. afford that private health insurance. Um, but yeah. in saying that, I think overall, um, at the end of the day, we come out similarly, although perhaps our examinations are slightly different structured. I think we do walk out at a, at a similar skill set, definitely. Um, I think in terms of uh, training from, uh, I guess, the leadership, the bullying, the civility type mm. environment we're looking at, I would say here, I, to be very honest with you, I haven't witnessed anything that I haven't anywhere else. And I actually think, um, if anything, I think we're, we're very well supported in the United Kingdom from where I work, um, from a trainee mm. and consultant perspective. I think at the end of the day, and I, we can talk a little bit more about this later on, about incivility within yeah. medicine as a whole, um, because that, that is a theme that is rising. However, um, I, yeah. I'm been, I've been pleasantly surprised so far. I don't know if I'm seeing a portion of what there is out there, though. So once again, I've only worked mm. in the same institute since being here. Um, but I feel, I know I always make it my objective to to create a healthy and happy environment. You know, that's what takes me to work every day. And I would like to think yeah. that my colleagues where I work, but also around the United Kingdom would feel the mm. same. Of course, then you see the other spectrum where, you know, I have read obviously Adam Kay's book. So I am unaware that oh, yeah. <laughs> I was, was going to go into that next. Is it, is it true, Jess? Is, is, is it like that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, I, he, he was a little bit before my time. Um, I must say, I have a colleague that used to work with him. And so, you know, I, I think it was a great book. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it was a great book <laughs> Definitely. Jess, so I don't know if you're allowed to pick and choose, but which of the two are you more passionate about and you rather spend more of your time? Is it the gynecology part of it or the obstetrics part of it? Because it's, it's one of those few specialties where it is two very distinct specialties kind of merged together. Um, what do you prefer and why? Yes, that's a great question. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I actually like them both. And I know that sitting on the side, but I think it's important um, that we have people like me that like them both. The reason I say yeah, that um, is mm. that so at the moment, my job is about 60% obstetrics, 40% gynecology. However, it is so important, I feel, that I maintain my gynecology skills. The reason being mm. is obstetrics is becoming more and more complicated. And a basic example of this is that um, obviously we've got an increase in cesarean section rate, so therefore we're seeing more women down the track when they go for baby number two, baby number three, baby number four. The, the surgery becomes more complex. It's so important mm. that we have a group of obstetricians that have gynecology as their other you know half yeah. of their job plan because they're the ones with the skill set to be able to for instance deal with these Definitely. complex cases divide adhesions properly you know know those generic i guess gynecological skills like needing to do a hysterectomy quickly if need be um, and obviously it's rare you find yourself in that situation but it's so important that there is a group of us out there that that do both um, i actually also really enjoy my balanced week so i have you know amazing job plan i'm very fortunate in the job you know that i've ended up um being granted at gardens and thomas's but i have you know a wonderful 
you know, I do two um, very unique antenatal clinics a week. And then I've also got my gynecology mm. clinic. And I, I really enjoy that mix in every day. Um, and I, I think yeah. it, it, it's, I don't know, I, I'm not going to boast and say my job's the best, but it's the best for me. Um, I, I, I want to keep both my skills up and I like the difference in every day. I really do. Yeah, that kind of brings me on to the next question. Even as a junior F2 doing it, I remember there were days where I could be in theatres, the very next day I can be in any kind of dealing with ectopics, and then the day after I can be doing morning and evening clinics. What is your week like? Um, so what's your average week as a consultant ONG in a very busy um, hospital um, for the you know for the medical students and the juniors that may want to pursue ONG as a career? So what does a typical week look like for you? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I work um, what's called 10 PA, so 10 sessions. That's my roster for the week. But then what you take into account is when you're on call, um, it can often, I mean, I'm very lucky, it's from home because I live close enough to the hospital that that's permitted. Um, but you can obviously mm -hmm. be home doing other things. So my typical week is um, I tend to, I, as I said before, I do so clinics, so I do two antenatal clinics a week. So one of them is with inflammatory bowel disease, um, as well as other community um, women that require a review by uh, an obstetrician. So for whatever reason that might be, because they've had a cesarean section mm -hmm. before, they're of a higher age than the normal. Um, but then the other antenatal clinic I do each week is the Diabetes and Pregnancy Service, which is a huge clinic. Um, and it's really multidisciplinary, which is why I love it. So we have our endocrinologist, our obstetric medicine physician um, there, as well as our team of obstetricians. Um, and we look after, I think, about 14% of our women at the moment, so quite a lot. So it's a busy clinic. So mm -hmm. comparing my Tuesday morning to my Wednesday afternoon clinic, I can tell you which one I'm more exhausted at at the end. Um, so, <laughs> Um, I also do, so I do um, a cesarean section list a week, which I absolutely love because not only it means I can put, mm -hmm. you know, women on it that I feel are more complex than mm -hmm. I'd like to be part of their surgery. So, for example, you know, women in my IBD clinic that have had previously had colorectal surgery, but um, it also means it's a chance for me to use that, you know, that day as um, teaching trainees, um, you know, the, the basic mm -hmm. surgical procedures and the skills. So I love that day of the week as well. Um, I do, um, in addition, I do a gynecology clinic. So I do a benign gynecology clinic um, one morning a week. Um, and then mm. the other sessions, um, so I'm really fortunate in my job, I get an educational session, um, which is amazing. Mm. And I think that's something that I really like how the United Kingdom does do that for consultants. Um, and it, it maybe I was not aware of that in Australia, but it, it's really good that they allow people who are passionate about education to have that time in their job plan to really foster those skills. Um, I also, um, in addition, I do an external cephalic version service, so that's the ECV service where you turn breech babies around, um, and that's a lot of fun, and we, I do that in collaboration with our specialised midwives. Um, in addition, what else I do, so obviously I do the on-call, so I do yeah. one 24-hour weekday shift, um, which is a Monday for anyone having a baby at St. Thomas's, uh, <laughs> for 24 hours, <laughs> once a month. So I do, you know, we, we share a one in four roster for Mondays and you cover in that time 24 hours. So it, it is a big shift. But then again, I can be off site from uh, late in the evening until the morning. Obviously, um, I think when you start off as a consultant, you probably tend to be around a lot more and present. So what I do find is, although I can be off site, 
I may be hanging around, you know, just because I can see a challenging case coming up and I would hate for anyone on that shift to feel like they weren't supported by me. Um, and then what else do I do? Oh, I do obviously gynecology surgical operating list. So it, it's, a, it's a big week. It's a big week. But I must say, mm. um, I have Thursdays off. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. um, so with the busy week you've just described, a lot of our um, listeners will ask the one big question which we all of us juniors actually ask is, how do you also balance life outside of work? Um, what do you do outside of work and how do you fit all of that in? Yes, it's true. Um, and I often, you know, get asked, do I, do I, am I a person that has like 32 hours in a day? You know, how do I jam it all in? I think my, <laughs> advice, my biggest advice is, yes, I totally agree with you. You've got to have that self-care aspect in your, your weekly schedule. Um, for me, I'm quite fortunate with my um, husband. He's not medical, although he probably pretends he is. He's not. Um, and so <laughs> what that allows is when I'm home, I do switch off. You know, I, I, I'm not okay, here yeah. to talk about a, a case that he will have no clue about. You know, I, I don't do that. So <laughs> we, um, we do a lot of exercise together. So we often go boxing once a week or do um, oh, nice. just telling me doing personal training with him. Um, so we often, mm. you know, exercise a few times a week together, which is great. It's in the park. I know it's still summer. That might change in winter, but it, it's been great today. Mm. Um, another thing is um, I make sure one night a week it's phones off nowhere. You know, like you, you leave them behind. If you go out to dinner, you leave your phone behind. And I think that's actually yeah. Yeah. really healthy from that perspective. It's just having that away from social media, away from email um, time that's designated. Um, and I think it's also good to enforce that on your other half, whether or not they are medicine, because it, it's like all of us. I think in COVID, we're all, whether we're doing medicine or not, a lot of us are taking work home because we can now. Yeah. Um, and I think you've got to, you've really got to endorse that separation between, you know, doing the right thing, yes, by your job, but doing the right thing by yourself. Um, and that's super important. I think I'd say that would be my biggest thing is find whatever it is that will help you maintain your self-care. Because at the end of the day, if you have good self-care, you're going to go to work mindful, you know, a healthy mind. Mm. You're, you're, you're going to have a great morale. You're going to be enthusiastic. You're going to have the energy. Um, and you're going to do the right thing by your patients as well. No, Absolutely, yeah. Definitely agree. Um, and it's good. I'll, I, the, the balance you have between work and your own personal family life is good. And the fact that you kind of have dedicated time where you're away from all social media, away from any distraction, is refreshing to hear. I think what's what's even greater is the fact that we can also see that and it's also voiced wherever you guys go. So, for example, we were talking to Professor Mahmood recently, um, speaking to yourself, and also we can see uh, Dr. Nikki Stamp uh, on Instagram. She regularly completely cuts off social media. And seeing individuals who are in very busy professions able to balance life, social media, and the job, um, it just answers the questions that a lot of us juniors and medical students have, which is, um, can you balance it? Or are, is there only a handful of specialties that allows you to do that? Um, so I, I think it really does open up the possibilities and allows us to actually start to experiment and think about different specialties. Mm. Um, definitely, definitely. Awesome. And I think that's a, that's a really important thing you note. And I think it might take home message as well to you know, medical students, junior doctors, even colleagues, is 
that remember medicine is becoming so flexible and there are aspects yeah, yeah. of it that you will find um, that become your strength. So, you know, whether it is mm. developing podcasts or it's, you know, doing education, mm. you'll find your little niche. Um, and that means that also, you know, you, you, you don't, you're not expected to work full time clinically. You know, no one is these yeah. days. It's so important to think mm. about what you want to do. And you can pave your way. You know, you can be the first one to, you know, straight up ask for a two-day job. You know, no one actually will probably, you know, say no. What you've got to do is show that you're doing the right thing by you. I think that's the most important thing. Um, and mm, anyone, yeah. you know, if you can justify it um, and show that you're going to be brilliant or, you know, even get to being brilliant, it, it, it will definitely um, be something that people will take very seriously. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, another thing which you are probably best supposed to answer is we always get young females reaching out to us that they're a bit wide with medicine as a career in general, but especially with careers such as ONG, where there's loads of on-calls, there's nights and days, is as female individuals, is it doable? Um, and it's always nice to hear from someone that is established, that has done it. What advice would you give to those individuals that are a bit wide? They they have a passion for women's health. They have a passion for surgery, but they, you know, a bit wide. Is it a career for females? What would you say to those individuals? I, I honestly, it's a career for both genders. So I think, you know, at the moment, mm. we're seeing a huge number um, of obviously female trainees versus male. And I, I actually think we mm. both face the similar challenges Like we all know um, at the moment, you know, uh, Fathers as well want a, a really balanced life just as much as um, yeah. mothers do. Um, or, you know, even if you're yeah. without children, you do you do want that um, lifestyle balance. I must say with obstetrics and gynecology, I think you are, you are right that traditionally it probably was seen as not being, you know, the right specialty choice because of the demands yeah. of the work. But I, I think that definitely changed. You know, we're, we're 2020 now. Um, we can actually yeah. do part part-time training anyone can do it you do not need to have to have a child or a baby or be planning on having mm. a child anyone can actually request to do part-time training of obstetrics and gynecology and I think that's a huge game changer you know I, I think it, it's wonderful now that yes it's going to take longer to get to being a consultant mm. but remember all along the way you can be doing so many other things that make you that wholesome doctor Definitely. at the end yeah and i agree and it means you don't have to forsake something that you really love and enjoy you can still do that um, exactly. albeit yeah. on, a, on a different time scale and that's really important i'm glad you echoed um, the same thing and you mentioned about medical education earlier um so you founded the the covid meded the medical education how did that come about um i saw you know thousands of students kind of benefited from that so what was the trigger or the driving force behind that um and yeah, so, kind of how yeah. did COVID affect you? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a good question. So, I mean, um, I guess we all found ourselves with a little bit more time during COVID. Um, mm. And I think that's mm. more sort of from an aspect of, although I know my, personally, my on-calls went up. However, I still did have that yeah. downtime that, you know, I could then mm. look into doing what I loved. And I must say medical education is something I'm so passionate about. And I think it's even, I guess it's being in touch with, junior doctors or medical students that I love mm. too. Um, and I, I think it's that mm. whole knowing that we're a family together, we're going to get through this. We mustn't neglect the undergraduate mm. education that is suffering because of COVID. And that, that's where it stemmed from. So as educational supervisor, I have about 
six or eight students under me at King's. Um, and what I realise is, you know what, then actually their training is on pause at the moment. You know, we need to do something about mm. it. Um, and I was really fortunate yeah. that I had a medical student approach me wanting to join forces. And that was just amazing because we could sort of share the load, but then create this platform where people were similar to me. You know, we had an hour spare a week where we could give a lecture. Um, and mm. I guess that's coming together to do something for the medical community. Um, and that, that's what yeah. I thought was my thing I would do is, you know, mm. during COVID, in addition to my clinical work, what else could I give back? Well, I'm going to help the medical community by making sure our undergraduates got to continue with educational opportunities to help fill that mm. gap and to feel like they've been included um, in, in in the life at, at the moment. I thought, yeah, so that, that's honestly my yeah. my motivation at the end yeah. of the day for creating Amazing. A- Amazing. Um, and, I, and I do think that uh, from feedback from a lot of the medical students, they felt that their training and teaching was sort of the impact of COVID was minimised because of COVID meded and all the other sort of supporting um, educational platforms that popped up over the period of March. Um, so that was really awesome. Um I want to take us on to a important topic that I came across only recently through an article that you wrote on the concept of incivility in medicine. I think it's a relentless cycle with the F1s who recently started in August. I was on Twitter and you see the same tweets, just a different name, different face. And essentially it's discussions about how how radiologists might speak to them about a scan, how their consultant might treat them, how a registrar might treat them. Um, it seems to be the same thing again and again. And and you've sort of done an article on the concept of incivility and how we should now be looking to get rid of it, get completely rid of it. I'd like to ask you, first of all, why is medicine vulnerable to incivility and yeah. just examples of it? Yeah, so I, I must say I'm impressive with your use of language there. So you are right. So it's incivility, <laughs> and then the other thing is being uncivil. So it can be tricky. So well done on getting that right. Um, so yeah. I guess why is medicine prone to it? And I think that's a really, although it's probably not obvious, but it is obvious. So I, I think it, as a whole, we are challenged by so much. So first of all, it's the workforce pressures, it's filling staff gaps, it's people are off sick, it's a change in your role on a day-to-day basis. In addition, you know, I think at the moment we're pressured to, you know, work in an environment we might not be used to because of COVID. So, you know, we've moved clinics or whatever it is. Um, And then on top of that, you know, we've got to deal with, you know, the increase in hours, you know, different personalities, people not getting their holidays. You know, I could write, you know, for day, anyone could write a whole list on it. Um, And I think that's that's quite so apparent. And I think looking at, so when I put together that article, um, which uh, someone did approach me about from Australia to write, and I I don't know why they approached me. I hope they approached me because they thought I'm a civil person, not that I like breed. (laughs) But anyway, I'm hoping they thought I was (laughs) the first thing. Um, But basically, um, when I looked at the evidence, it's really interesting that I think what made it quite clear is actually we focus on incivility a lot um, within the the medical faculty, so within, you know, doctors. But actually, we we also need to look against, you know, what's happening out in the wider multidisciplinary team. So it's our nursing staff, our administration, you know, the the people that are responsible for helping, you know, clean theatres. Because I actually think... in uh, 
incivility actually occurs a lot more than what we realize. And we only actually have statistics on, on doctors, believe it or not. Um, and I, I think that's something to take forward in, is that it, it's there because of all the pressures we face. And it's something that we do need to deal with in a hurry before it's too late. Um, I guess moving forward, and I might be able to probably guess the next question you're going to ask me, is yeah. how does it impact, if you're saying it's the whole team, what happens? And I think mm. there was this matrix I sort of devised for the article where you had, obviously, in the center, you had that person that's being uncivil. You know, so whether or not yeah. they're yelling abuse or even you know, body language, that, that can be uncivil as well. And then what you have on the outside is you have that poor receiving individual that just cops it. You know, they, they are you know, making feel like they've disappeared under the floorboards. Um, and what that does is it really impacts their cognition because at that time, you know, not only in the short term, they can't think straight. You know, they, they don't know how to prescribe mm. that medication because they've just forgotten the dose because they've been yelled at. Yeah. But actually going home or the next day when they come back to work, their, their mindset is is impaired by that uncivil performance. Um, and then what you've got to yeah. do is you've got to look at, okay, well, who witnessed it? Because actually what they've done is that uncivil person has broken down that psychological safety that once existed in the team. You know, what they've done is yeah. they've been uncivil. They've, they've basically broken all that relationship, that mutual trust, that morale. It, it disappeared because, you know, the team has literally broken down. Um, and that's super yeah. important. You know, we've got to remember that those people that witness it, their their performance is also impacted by what they saw. And actually, one study showed very interesting statistic that anyone who witnesses uncivility, they are fifty percent more likely to be unwilling to help others that day. That's like huge. Oh, wow. You know, oh, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that is a, the, it's amazing. You know what what being uncivil can really do. And I think last but not least, we have mm. to think about that patient because at the end of the day, that patient's safety and healthcare has definitely been compromised. You know, whether it was yeah. that poor receiver, but also the team around them. You know, if the team's broken, mm. who's going to care for the patient? You know, and I think that, yeah, that's yeah. really important. Um, and we've really got to look at that matrix. We've got to work out how can we address this quickly um, and, mm. and really foster... I guess the learning of becoming civil beings to each other. Yeah. How do you think we can challenge sort of uncivil behavior and we can yeah. become more civil? How, how do you think yeah. we can challenge it? Or where and should change start? Very, very good question. I, I actually think I'm a firm believer that the first point we need to do is look at self care. Because if we mm, go home yeah. at the end of the day, we promote our own self-care, we become you know, more healthier in our mindset, we come to work the next day having had a good sleep, having had a bit of social activity with maximum six people, you know, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. We are going to be more civil, full stop. You know, self-care yeah. is paramount. It, it really is. And we have to actually put ourselves first here and then and prioritize our, our well-being. I think a second thing is, is we know, and I, I'm quoting from my article now, but, you know, civility costs nothing but buys everything. Uh, it, it really mm, does. Yeah. Um, and I think what we've got to remember is to be civil, we don't have to throw heaps of money into this. You know, what we have to do yeah. is just look at our individual level and then look at the wider team, have a think about, you know, how our behaviors are. 
reflect, so team reflection. So I, I know when trainees probably try and bang my head against a brick wall, but at the end of the day, I'm like, how did you feel at the end of the day? You know, what could we have changed to make your day better? Um, and I think that's yeah. a really important thing um, because I think that reflective feedback, timely feedback um, in a team, and then looking at how we can actually be more civil. So whether it is letting you know everyone have a proper lunch break, I, I think that's going to cost us absolutely nothing, but it's actually going to buy everything yeah. at the end of the day. Definitely, and I think I've I've personally noticed that even in my own kind of working day to day, the consultants that kind of you know perhaps buy your coffee or are pleasant kind of ask you how was your weekend i feel like empowered and i want to do even more i want to go above and beyond yeah. what is expected from me just to kind of make the team even better and i've kind of seen definitely team dynamics where you know where the team is such a cohesive strong family type unit that you know they do work better they do end up i don't know if it affects patient care or not but you can see it and and, and it's, sometimes it's heartening to see other juniors when you know they've kind of been yelled at by their colleagues been yelled at seniors and i do feel for them um but i have seen when yeah. being civil does make a big big difference i i, I agree i think the to- the top down effect is very powerful when a consultant really harbors a very very um collaborative atmosphere and i've got loads of consultants that now come to mind saying that and their teams i've loved when when i was a student i loved being in their firms and when i was uh, an f1 or an f2 um i i loved i genuinely loved the job and then there were a few jobs i didn't love and often it was because no one was happy in the team everyone was miserable everyone was just rude to each other and i feel like um it was also top down um so i i do feel there's a lot of power as well in our seniors and i think as us juniors go through training um if we're not exposed to the the more civil behavior the collaborative teamwork the even buying a coffee for each other um if if we're not exposed to that we can often take those sort of more toxic traits on board um but i do i do wholeheartedly agree with that no, I definitely I agree with both what you're saying, and I think it's really interesting hearing your stories too. You know, it, that's what I mean. It's like yeah. you've identified that, you know, you're going to get that teamwork, you're going to get that inspired and motivated junior doctor. Yeah, it's yeah. actually the day's more civil. You know, that's that's the key message at the end of the day. Um, I I, do, I love how you mentioned coffee rounds. It's so funny because often I do buy a coffee round, and I think my my, <laughs> my maximum has been 15 yeah. coffees recently. And wow. I went to the receptionist, oh, wow. I went to, you know, I, I did everyone within the birth center. And I must say, I had to yeah. take um, a medical student down to help me carry it back up. Um, but they wanted to yeah. come, they wanted to come. I didn't make them come. No. They, they, were, they, they were more than happy to accompany me. Um, and we can yeah. have a chat on the way down. But it, it, it does make a huge difference. It, it, you know, a, a two pound coffee, that's nothing in the spectrum of um, a day that finishes well, you get good patient outcomes. Mm. You know, I'm happy to do that. Mm. Um, and and yeah. there's, obviously there's so many other ways other than buying coffees, but I think you know that message mm, is course. clear that we can do little things for each other that really make yeah. a difference. What advice would you give? So your podcast was really popular. Uh, everyone loved <laughs> it. Um, oh, and <laughs> I think your Australian accent kicked in and it's always very different. And it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is super cool. Um, how do people kind of get involved in MedEd um, medical students what are the things they can do 
Um, I appreciate not everyone can, you know, produce a podcast podcast or has access to medical students. But what are some of the things they can do that you've noticed from your experience that are helpful for, you know? Yes. So I, I must say, I, yeah, yeah. I, I admire you both and I admire your cohort. I think, you know, you've taken this opportunity of utilising technology to run with this, you know, amazing, unique, world now you know it's so easy to get involved in educational opportunities or you know running with you know creating podcasts on topic it's just phenomenal what you all have achieved and specifically you both i think my advice going forward for people that want to get involved in education is you know even even if you are a medical student you can still get involved and i think it's on your placement or wherever you're based find that person you know it doesn't have to be a consultant it could be a registrar who also you can tell just loves education and just say to them look actually I'm really keen to get involved in teaching or you know uh, you know a medical education type activity you know what could you offer or is this something you'd like to do or you know do you mind if I share your next lecture with you and I've done that before with um, junior trainees that want to you know get into education and they've helped me with my king's college lectures and that's a wonderful start i think also when it's good to pair up with someone is you get that um uh, real-time feedback with you know how did you think you delivered you know what you know what what tools or techniques do you want to use next Mm. time um and also Mm. i think these days another amazing aspect going forward is that you know a lot of universities now do these postgraduates or these masters in education um which gives that opportunity for individuals if they want to sort of become, I guess, uh, that, that's their sort of specialised area of interest, they can do further yeah. training in it, um, which, which is great. You know, this wasn't around decades ago. Um, and I, I think that's yeah. wonderful now. You know, you can, you can approach it from lots of different angles, and that's what you want. You know, you want to be able to yeah. pick it up where, wherever you go. Definitely. Um, I'm conscious of time. And I know you're super busy. I think you mentioned you were operating this morning. Um, what advice would you give to other medical students um, and juniors that perhaps do want a career in ONG? Or what advice would you give as, as, a, as a doctor that's senior to us that has um, far more experience than us? We're all here to learn. And what advice would you can you give to us? Yeah, sure. I think my biggest advice is you know, you're in medicine for the long haul, okay? So, Mm. you know, we didn't do all this study to, you know, in four years' time, retire. I mean, some of you may be able to in the amazing things you're doing, but I I think we know going into it, we're we're in for the long haul. And so what my biggest advice is, is do what you know will make you most happy. Like that, that is without a doubt. So, you know, Mm. find that interest interesting area that you know that will wake you up in the morning that will get you out of bed that will allow you to become known if you want to be or you know just find whatever it is that area is that you want to specialize in and it may not necessarily be a specialty that you've got to think about you know it it could be anything but i think it's finding your niche um and i i think and then just running with it and don't think you have to find that niche in year one or year two of medicine you don't at all you know, it can evolve with time. And I think as it's evolving, keep an open mind because someone will find your talent and they're going to foster you in running with it. Yeah. And I think that's the other big key is find someone as well um, along your way that you know is going to be a really good mentoring figure because that's what you, mm. you do need. You're going to have tough days. You're going to have tough times. But you want to know that you've got your buddy there 
to help mm. you along and to get you to that place you want to be definitely and i think that's sound advice and there's not much we can echo on that it's it, mm. it is the long haul and definitely do find something you do enjoy and i wholeheartedly agree with that um i'm sure there'll be loads of students that may be interested and keen to reach out how do they get hold of you jess what's the best way to get in touch <laughs> what's the best way um, <laughs> if you're happy for them to get in touch <laughs> of course it's up to you. I, I, won't, I won't tell you where i live but um of <laughs> <laughs> i must say it is near St. Thomas's. but um so okay. uh best way to get in touch with me is um so twitter so i i'm just definitely making difficult last name to spell but these wonderful scrubbed in people will be able to spell it for you um but also, yeah. um, uh, you can um, find me, I'm sure, on email if you work within the trust. That's not a problem. But even, you know, sending me a message on Twitter, that's probably a really good starting tool. That's probably the best way um, to do and, yeah. and, you know, I'm more than happy, you know, if people want to meet up for a coffee and chat, you know, if they've had a tough time or they just want to chat about their careers, I, I'm more than happy yeah, to. So yeah. um, I'll promise I will no. buy your coffee. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My shout, my shout. Um, but yes, no, definitely reach out. Um, this is the time where we all need to reach out to each other. And you know, I know mm. even in the COVID era, I've had to reach out to people because we're all here to support each other. We're all going to get through with yeah. this. You know, at the, mm. there is light at the end of the tunnel um, and don't forget that. Mm. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, we've taken up enough of your time, Jess. It really has been <laughs> a pleasure you. and I've really enjoyed oh, this. There's, there's a spring in your voice and I don't know if it's <laughs> the, the Australian accent, but it, it does just listening to you makes me feel happy. Um, yeah. But, so true yeah it's so true so, i feel so happy thank you so much for having me i really love talking to you both there's a spring in your voice too so both of you so thank yeah. you <laughs> thank you thank you thank anytime you. anytime <laughs>